Hello and welcome to the 100 Day Writing Challenge, day 41. A few days ago I mentioned, in passing, H.P. Grice's conversational maxims and threatened to return to them at a later date. Well, that day has arrived sooner than either of us dreamed. So, H.P. Grice was a philosopher of language and he wanted to talk about what sort of assumptions need to be in place for a conversation between two people to work. I guess a prototypical set of informal, unstated rules that we abstract from our experience of conversations as we grow up and then apply when we speak to people. He came up with four conversational maxims that we adopt when we want to have an effective, rational conversation with someone. These aren't things that we have consciously in mind. They might not be things that we've ever thought of or articulated. Yet, according to Grice, at least, they underpin our communication. In a sense, they're so obvious that we never really think about them. But without them, it might be very tricky to make ourselves understood. Whenever someone starts talking about assumptions or things that we take for granted, I I get quite excited because there's a prospect of getting an insight into some aspect of human behaviour that's been there in front of me all this time. And obviously, with our current focus on dialogue and what is and isn't said, I feel like this is a good opportunity to rip the panelling off human speech and have a look at the mess of haphazard wiring the previous tenant left in. Now, bear in mind, I'm not Uh, staking out a claim for the absolute truth of Grice's uh, theoretical position or not. I just think these are really cool spectacles to try on that allow us to slice up the complexity of human language and interaction in a new and interesting way. Um, to be, you know, I'm not suggesting that these are culturally universal or that there are no gaps in Grice's theory whatsoever. Just that it's an interesting and thought-provoking model that could be useful for you as you write. So his four maxims were the maxim of quality, try to make your contribution one that is true, the maxim of quantity, try to provide enough information for the purposes of the exchange but no more, the maxim of relation, be relevant, and the maxim of manner, be perspicuous which ironically is a way of explaining it that violates the rule, since it means aiming for clarity. Quantity, quality, relevance and clarity. Now, what he's describing here are the assumptions we tend to bring to a conversation with someone. We assume generally that their contributions are honest, that they've told us all we need to know, that they wouldn't bring up something unless it was important, and that they've tried to be as clear as possible since they want to be understood. This means, and you might recognise this from some of the dialogue exercises we've done on previous days, that the person addressed will usually add to the over-surface meaning of an utterance by assuming the speaker is obeying Grice's four maxims. This is called conversational implicature. Are you with me so far? So I'll give some examples to hopefully flesh this out so it makes a little bit sense don't worry if you're feeling lost hopefully it's going to click into place so a classic example is someone parked at the side of the road with their hazard lights on and another driver pulls up and the first driver says i've run out of petrol to which the driver who pulled up responds there's a garage half a mile down the road so person b who pulled up is assuming person a the driver with their hazards on They're assuming that they're obeying the maxim of quality. This person isn't lying about having run out of petrol. The maxim of quantity, they've provided all the necessary information with that utterance. You know, they haven't omitted 
and the gearbox has broken, and the maxim of relevance. They're bringing this up because they want assistance, and they're referring to the car here now that they're standing next to, and not an occasion in the past where they once ran out of petrol. The maxim of clarity is probably the one that includes the least implication, but I guess it applies here too. Person B assumes that the most obvious interpretation... Hello, I'm wondering if you could help me. I've, my car's run out of petrol and I need to find more petrol because I'd like to be on my way. That most obvious interpretation is the intended interpretation. And person B's response in this example requires the use of all four maxims too. When person B says there's a garage half a mile down the road, person A assumes that the person B believes that this is true and that the garage is open. The maxim of relevance, again... When characters violate Grice's four maxims, quality, quantity, clarity and relevance, either in what they say or how they interpret other people's speech, the effect is often humorous. Take, for, for instance, the classic Pink Panther scene where Inspector Clouseau asks a man, does your dog bite? And the guy says, no. So Clouseau goes to pet the dog and it promptly bites him. I thought you said your dog does not bite. That is not my dog. I, I, I'm not going to do the accent for that bit because um, you don't want me to. Um, if if a, vi a character violates the maxim of quality, they, they, you know, they might lie or they might simply say something obviously the opposite of their intended me meaning. In other words, sarcasm. So one character stumbles in, dishevelled, sour face and splattered with mud, and another says, you're looking a picture of radiance this morning, sir. Some phrases that violate the maximum of quality are so familiar we barely notice they're untrue. Like, I hope you're proud of yourself. No, no, you don't. You hope I'm ashamed. Um, a character who violates the maximum of quantity might overdo their answers. How was your weekend? Well, on Saturday I got up around 6.30am, went downstairs and squeezed myself an orange juice, put some coffee on, weighed myself pre and post bowel movement, journaled for a bit. My mood started off a 5 out of 10, then lifted to about 6 and a half once I was eating my multi-sea bagel, then dropped back to a clear 6 once I was done. I laced up my running shoes, etc, etc. Or, you know, a character might overdo it, might violate the maximum of quantity to annoy someone. Do you know where Trevor lives? In a house, I believe. Violating the maxim of relevance can be as simple as misinterpreting the implied question. Do you know where Trevor lives? Yes. Or interpreting a simple inquiry as a request for a deep disclosure on a topic. Um, excuse me, do you know where the donkey sanctuary is? My father was killed by a donkey. Violating the maximum of clarity often involves using phrasing with more than one logical interpretation when you mean the less obvious one. Hi, I'm looking for a plumber. This is a garden centre, sir. Yes, I, I was wondering if you'd seen him hiding amongst the sheds. Now, because you are both wise and experienced in the ways of Tim Clare, you will have already rushed ahead in your mind into the near future and guessed at what today's exercise might be all about. Because it would be a terrible violation of the maxim of relevance if I had told you all of this and then I just gave you a task about describing an acacia tree in a poetic way. I would like you, dear friend, to take the by now familiar format of an encounter betwixt two characters and have one of those characters, in every utterance they make, 
violate one of these four conversational maxims. You might like to note these down just now so you can remember them as you start doing the exercise. So the four conversational maxims are quality, quantity, relevance, and clarity. Quality, quantity, relevance, and clarity. Now, I don't know where this encounter is happening, but sometimes customer service scenarios work quite well, or one person could be a tourist or an out-of-towner asking another person, a local, for directions. It could be a diner talking to a waiter, maybe someone talking to a doddery or slightly drunk elderly relative. Up to you. It tends to work best, although it doesn't always have to be, but where, where the two people are not familiar to one another, although you could have a lot of fun with old friends or people who've known each other a long time who are antagonising one another. It needn't be deliberately written as comedy, though it's challenging not to make these exchanges have a touch of the absurd. Still, no need to butter the Mars bar. I wouldn't try to crowbar wackiness into the prose or indeed the other characters' reactions. It's traditional to have a, a straight man in these scenarios as a sort of squash court wall to bounce the increasingly silly non sequiturs off of. But it's up to you. None of these are, are rules. They're just suggestions of what I think you could do to tweak the difficulty level to be harder or easier. You know, you can always subvert. I mean, you're always welcome to subvert the, the very concept of the uh, of the exercise I give you. This is absolutely your course. I'm just kind of trying to set up some parameters to um, give you uh, as little work outside the actual creative part as possible. Look, so genre, location, style, all of that's your choice. One character encountering another, the second of which violates at least one, and hopefully all of at different points, but uh, violates at least one of Grice's conversational maxims with every utterance. Got it? Ace. Here we go then. Three, two, one, go.
And that's it. We're done, So I don't have much of an epilogue to add, you'll be glad to hear, except to say I hope hearing about these theories and working on these ideas a bit in your work has formalised some of your thinking about dialogue, implication, and what we say and mean when we talk. I realise some of it might seem a little esoteric and other parts might seem quite obvious on the face of it. Like, why do we need to have clever names for that? That just seems straightforward. But just, I think, raising your awareness even a notch can be invaluable, not just when it comes to writing dialogue, but even more so when it comes to redrafting and identifying problems with your dialogue. You know, when you've just got a sense that a scene or an exchange clunks, drags, or just doesn't seem to ring true... Having a formal language and framework for talking about these ideas can be just so, so handy in your second draft. So instead of you just having that like heavy feeling in your chest and going, oh, this just sucks. I know it does. It's just it's just bad. And you make this general diagnosis of the state of the dialogue that it's bad. You can actually, you know, like drill down into the scene and start noticing the bits you can go aha this specific dialogue exchange here is wooden because it's all surface and literal and transactional i need to punch it up with some subtext and you fix it because you've made the suckiness parts of it tangible you know like when you can see these things and you've got a framework for them it's like the text starts to sweat them out like little beads of gross kind of like oil and then you can kind of scrape them away. And then what's left is good. Like as soon as you've got a framework for it, what it means is once you make suckiness tangible, it becomes finite and something finite can be removed. Right. Terrific work. I hope you've learned something today. I do seek to actively empower you so you come out of this course with a brain several pounds heavier. Until tomorrow, take care. The 100 Day Writing Challenge is made possible with the kind support of Arts Council England.